Welcome to Fly on the Wall. I'm Allie. And I'm Abby. Um, be sure to follow us on all social media platforms, so Twitter, Facebook, Insta, and just a reminder, we still don't have a Snapchat. Um, it's <laughs> at Fly on the Wall Pod, and if you want to email us with any feedback or any suggestions, it's flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. We always love to hear from you. Uh, so we're really excited this week to be welcoming four former senior White House officials from the Obama administration, each of whom wrote chapters in West Wingers, a new book featuring stories from 18 Obama White House officials. Uh, we're going to be structuring this episode sort of like the book, uh, going one by one, talking to each of them about their experiences and hearing their stories. Up first is going to be Gautam Raghavan. Gautam served as President Obama's liaison to the LGBTQ community, as well as the Asian American and Pacific Islander community from 2011 to 2014. Earlier in the administration, he worked for the U.S. Department of Defense and served on the Pentagon's Don't Ask, Don't Tell working group. Earlier in his career, Raghavan worked for Progressive Majority, the DNC, and the 2008 Obama campaign. Today, he's the executive director of the Indian American Impact Project and Fund, and an advisor to the Biden Foundation. Let's welcome Gautam to the pod. Gautam Raghavan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, So let's just start off. You're the editor of this book, which includes a lot of fascinating stories from uh, senior White House officials in a very unique format. So just tell us about how it came about and how you got the idea to do it this way. Yeah, you know, I write a little bit about the how this all came together in the book. Um, you know, the long story is that the day I left about the White House, my dad called me up and said, you should write a book, which of course I ignored. Um, I just <laughs> thought it was a, a friendly family suggestion. Um, but then, you know, over the, over the next couple of years, um, and especially at the end of 2016, as the administration was drawing to a close, uh, I began to talk to more and more folks about the idea. And for us, we were at, it was a time where we were feeling really nostalgic about the end of the Obama administration, about our time in the White House. Um, you know, but we really felt that we had something special um, that we shared uh, that opportunity to work not just in the White House but in Barack Obama's White House. And we also knew that things were about to change considerably with the with the new administration coming in. So we got to talking, and there were enough people who seemed interested in the idea and who were willing to write a chapter and tell their story. Um, that in a lot of ways the stars just aligned and um, by early 2017 we had a group of about 15 to 20 people who were ready to write chapters in this book. So it took us about a year to put it together because everyone's got jobs. Um, none of us are, are exactly trained writers per se. Uh, but the end product is, is what we now have uh, as West Wingers and it's a, it's a great collection. I'm really proud of it. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit too about the personal stories you share in the book about uh, your time with Obama, uh, and you di- you discussed first seeing him when you were working on a congressional campaign in Seattle yeah. uh, after college. So back then, uh, what got you inspired about him? Did you ever think you'd wind up working in his White House? Um, but, you know, what's, uh, there's something about seeing him, and, and I, I can picture it so clearly. I was knocking on a door in suburban Seattle, Washington, and saw him speaking on the screen, that famous speech uh, in Boston at the Democratic Convention, and there was something about him, um, his poise, like the way that the people who were in the room were just like, glued to him. And I was like, I gotta, I don't know what this is, but I have to go watch this tonight. And so late that night after a long day of knocking on doors, I watched the speech and it was just riveting, you know. And the line that I always remember is we have uh, gay friends in the red states. And, you know, the whole, the whole bit about my brother's keeper, my sister's keeper. And he talked about America in a way that I found refreshing and new and a lot like the way I think about this country. Um, and I remember the, the next morning I told my parents, um, did you see that speech last night? I, one day I want to work for Barack Obama. And, you know, it was kind of a, kind of a joke. Um, I had no way of knowing that that would actually come true, you know, good eight years later. Yeah. So then, you know, you 
managed to get move over, move over to Obama world and work in the White House. So what's the, you know, for students who want to go into politics and uh, work at the higher, highest levels in D.C., uh, what's the trick? You just have to figure out who's going to be president <laughs> a decade from now and get, get on with them early? If only it were that easy. In fact, that is probably the worst thing you could possibly do if you wanted to work in the White House. Just from, from my experience, you can't game the system. There's no way to sort of script your way to the White House. Um, as you'll see from the 18 stories that are in West Wingers, we all got there in very different ways. Some of us, like Cecilia, came from 20 years of activism and advocacy. Uh, some of us worked our ways up um, from being interns on the campaign into the mailroom, into um, really low-level jobs in the White House, and then and stuck it out and did our work. There's, there's really no way to game it out. I think the most important thing that you can do in politics and in public service, I believe, is to do good work, be nice to people, and really focus on, on campaigns and candidates that represent your values. Um, you know, the, the world of campaigns is hard work, it's long hours, it's grueling. Um, to be honest, government isn't much better. It's long hours of grueling. It's rarely as glamorous as you see on TV. And so it's really only worth it if you find a candidate or a cause that you really believe in. Great. Well, Gautam, thank you so much uh, for chatting with us. Uh, and we can't wait to talk to the rest of the uh, team here and hear their stories from the White House. Uh, Sounds good. Thanks. Cool. Uh, next, we're welcoming on Cecilia Munoz, who served all eight years on Obama's senior White House staff, first as the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs and then as Assistant to the President and Director of the Domestic Policy Council, which works to coordinate the domestic policy-making process in the White House. Prior to joining his administration, she spent 20 years at UNIDOS US, formerly known as the National Council of La Raza, the nation's largest Latino civil rights organization. Uh, Cecilia Munoz, welcome to Fly on the Wall. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Um, so in the book, you recount a lot of your work on immigration policy and on the DREAM Act. Um, but before going to the White House, you spent 20 uh, years in activism at Unidos US, uh, an immigration advocacy group. So tell us a bit about that and your transition from advocacy to the West Wing. Yeah, in the 20 years I was there, it was called the National Council of La Raza, and I ran the public policy operations. So while my area of expertise is immigration policy, I covered a range of things like education and healthcare and housing and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I have broad policy expertise, but the stuff I know best is immigration policy, which is, I think, why the president asked me to come when he was uh, first elected. I got to know him when he came to the Senate because we were trying to pass an immigration bill, which is pretty much the same immigration bill we're still trying to pass. <laughs> um, and he would call policy experts in to brief him. Uh, and I was one of those people. That's how I got to know him. Yeah, so how's the work different? So you work at the, the sort of uh, in this activism role um, for a long time and then go to the White House uh, where now you're listening to activists and trying to make the policy. Uh, so how, how does that feel? Well, you know, at first when I got to the White House, I was I was worried about whether or not that skill set would transfer because um, being in government is actually really, can be really very different. The tools, the leverage that you have in government are very different from what you have as an advocate. But it turns out the skill set really does transfer more than I expected it to, that you're uh, particularly as a um, an advocate in a in a civil rights organization in a community focused organization, you really have to know your facts. You really have to be unassailable. I was kind of taught that if we weren't unassailable, people would assume that we just didn't know what we were doing, or that we were just playing what today you would call identity politics without any substance. So we went out of our way to make sure that we were doing policy analysis that was unassailable, that we could really um, justify the numbers that we were putting in reports and really bring a policy case to policymakers that really stood on its own. And that skill set and the ability to 
um, explain a complex issue briefly, which I think is the ultimate Washington skill set, is to be able to put a complex issue down on a single piece of paper, mm. um, to be able to describe things in writing, to describe things you know, verbally. Um, all of those things are essential if you're going to be an effective advocate, and they turn out to be essential skill sets in government as well. Uh, the difference is, I mean, what I... Uh, you know, wish I had known as an advocate that I now know from having sat at the other end of the table is that the people who are most effective are the advocates who recognize that you're in a governing role and that you have you don't have endless power and you don't have only one set of issues to be thinking about. So the advocates who see you as maybe part of a team who wants to accomplish the same thing but playing a different position on that team, who recognize what tools you do and don't have and build the kind of relationship with you as a policymaker where you are collectively working on a problem and trying to get it over the finish line. Very interesting, yeah. And there's one um, story in your chapter in the book in particular that caught my eye um, about President Obama coming to your defense uh, during a meeting about the DREAM Act with the Hispanic Caucus. Um, so recount that a little bit for us. Give you know our listeners a taste of what they might get if they read the book. And uh, what do you remember most vividly about that? Yeah, so the focus of my essay is really how I got uh, attacked a fair amount but from within my own community, which is something I expected would happen when I took the role. And in this case, it was a meeting with the entire Congressional Hispanic Caucus in the state dining room at the White House, um, focusing on immigration. And the Hispanic Caucus was frustrated because collectively, you know, we in the White House and in the Congress were having a much harder time than we'd hoped getting an immigration reform through. In fact, we ultimately didn't succeed. Um, and one member of the caucus, Senator Menendez, who I know, have known for many years and who I know well, said to the president, he pointed at me and he said, you know, if she, if it weren't for the fact that she were in government, she would be telling you what we're telling you. She just can't because she works for you now. And he got mad. Um, in fact, the only times I ever saw the president get mad were when people attacked his staff. Um, but frankly, as a member of his staff, the last thing you want to do is be the focus of a conversation. Um, you know, that we're there to advance a set of issues. The president's commitment to the immigration issue was as strong as anybody else's in that room. But turns out, as he frequently said, he's president of the United States, not emperor, not king, not a magician with a magic wand that can make things happen without the Congress of the United States. So just to bring this full circle a little bit, you talked uh, earlier about uh, all the skills you need to succeed in those high-level meetings um, with members of Congress with the president, uh, and you, you know, for an audience of college students here, uh, what should college students be doing now? I mean, we're writing 20-page term papers, but if we need to get that down to a one-page memo, uh, what are the skills we need to develop and how? So the temptation that the people that I worked with always had, you know, I worked with people who are policy experts with a lot of depth on important issues like healthcare or energy policy or education policy. One inclination you have when you're an expert on something is that you want to show off everything that you know. But when you're writing a memo for a policymaker, for the president, for a member of Congress, um, or for, you know, for your boss at an advocacy organization, what you want is not so much to show how much you know, you want to give them what they need to know in order to make a good decision. And those are very different things. And the, the art, if you will, of kind of synthesizing something down to what does a decision maker need to know in order to make a well-informed decision is to a degree about the depth of your knowledge, but it's also about your judgment and your, your ability to sort of synthesize what's the really important stuff and what is extraneous to this particular decision that needs to get made. Definitely something for, uh, 
for us as students to take to heart. Cecilia, thank you so much. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. And now uh, we're happy to welcome Ned Price onto the pod. He began his career in the CIA as an intelligence analyst in 2006, later becoming a spokesperson for the agency. In 2014, he joined the Obama administration on the National Security Council, advising the president on matters of foreign policy and national security, first as director of strategic communications and later as the NSC spokesperson. Ned Price, thanks so much for coming on Fly on the Wall. We're excited to have you. Happy to be here. Uh, so in the book, you talk about a time where you accidentally copied a reporter um, what was supposed to be an internal email containing sensitive, though not classified, uh, information. So tell us a bit about that and how you went about sort of handling the mistake. Sure. So just a little bit of backstory here. I had been at the White House at the National Security Council at the time for just a few few weeks, maybe four or five weeks. And the way I found to make up for the newness and to get used to the new technology and the new people and the new processes was to work at a breakneck speed. And this is something that I'm sure we've all done, where we've uh, been filling out an email, we've been entering people on the two line, and you have this you know auto-populate function where uh, if you've emailed someone before, their name just pops in. Well, that's what happened in this case. Uh, and instead of a a colleague of mine on the National Security Council, I accidentally uh, uh, included a reporter from a national news outlet on this email that, as you said, was not classified, but it was extraordinarily uh, sensitive at the time. Uh, I realized my mistake uh, soon after sending the email when it was flagged uh, to me by one of my colleagues asking me if I uh, meant to CC a reporter, um, obviously knowing the answer all along. Uh, of course I didn't, and, and at that point my heart just sank, not knowing what the consequences and implications would be. Then how, uh how do you move forward from that and how do your supervisors kind of react? Well, so I was still very new to the White House and so how I moved forward was to assume the worst, to assume that uh, I would be asked to, uh, to start packing my boxes, uh, that they appreciated my brief uh, tenure at the White House and, uh, but they no longer had a need for me. Uh, what I found was something quite the opposite, however. I ran down to my boss's office in the West Wing and uh, described to him in a near panic what had happened. Uh, he handled it very, uh, um, uh, very calmly and effectively. He picked up the phone, placed a couple phone calls. We weren't able to uh, do anything about the missent email. Uh, but in the aftermath of this, when there was a lot of public attention on this and a lot of public scrutiny over the, the White House screw-up, uh, my phone started ringing, uh, and again, I assumed it would be higher-ups telling me, you know, uh, we appreciate your service, but uh, we can't have you here any longer. Uh, but no, it was seniors within the White House, very senior people at the highest levels calling and saying, look, uh, everyone makes mistakes, don't let this get to you, you do good work. And this was, to me, emblematic uh, not only of how people uh, at the White House responded to adversity, adversity, but how collegial they were, how they treated colleagues, um, how we all uh, saw each other as... Uh, on the same team, uh, in the same effort. And so that's a great segue sort of to tie it back to, to campus. And you're a Georgetown grad, so you know that plenty of students here do internships and aspire to work in politics. Um, and at least speaking my, for myself, uh, I've always been sort of terrified of making even a small mistake uh, when I'm interning, thinking I'd be uh, laying my bosses down and probably doing myself in if I ever want to you know, take a career in politics. Um, and I think that's a sentiment that some students share. Uh, so what lessons do you sort of draw from this mistake? And what would you say to students who strive to not let anything go wrong, but inevitably it does on occasion? Yeah, I think the overall lesson is don't be afraid to screw up. Uh, everyone screws up, whether you're an intern on Capitol Hill, 
uh, in your first job right out of college or as uh, a, the new person at the White House. You're bound to make mistakes. It's really how you handle those mistakes. Uh, in this case, I was lucky enough that I was surrounded by a community of professionals uh, who were not only brilliant and effective and talented at what they do, but again, also had that spirit of collegiality, who saw uh, their co-workers um, for what they brought to the table and saw the really the, the humanity in everyone, despite the grueling hours and the, and the, the, the pace that was required of everyone. So uh, if you don't make mistakes, you're, you're not challenging yourself. And the best advice, uh, which I write about uh, in the chapter as well, um, the best advice I got as a new CIA uh, officer is to take on new challenges. Whenever you're offered a new challenge, a new opportunity, to never say no. And so obviously, if that's your mantra, if you follow through with that, you're bound to get into situations where uh, the terrain is unfamiliar, uh, you don't know the people, you don't know uh, the, the personalities, you don't know the contours of the situation, and of course you're going to find uh, challenging situations and situations where you will obviously end up on the wrong side of an error, um, but that is no cause to throw in the towel, uh, that's just cause to uh, wipe yourself off and keep going. Well, Ned, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast, and we hope you are enjoying your time back on campus today. Appreciate it. And finally, we'll be welcoming Brad Jenkins onto the podcast. Brad is now Pioneer Dive's Managing Director and Executive Producer in Washington, D.C. And before joining Pioneer Dive last year, Brad spent four years serving as President Obama's Associate Director in the White House Office of Public Engagement. In 2008, Brad served as the Deputy Director of Special Projects for President Obama's election campaign, specializing in the intersection of youth media and grassroots engagement. Let's welcome Brad to the pod. Brad Jenkins, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We're excited to have you. Um, so we want to start off. You worked in your in the White House of Office of Public Engagement, uh, and one of the biggest issues you had to deal with while you were there was the rollout and aftermath of healthcare.gov. Um, so just for background, tell us how you felt when it first dawned on you that this was going to be a big deal. When healthcare.gov would be a big deal? Yeah. I think as soon as I was hired, I feel like Carson, so I worked in the Office of Public Engagement, um, and our job was to connect to as many people as possible. Um, and it was the office of sort of the community organizers of the White House. So we weren't policy wonks. We weren't uh, economists. Uh, we were mostly young people who organized block by block and got Obama elected. So when I was, um, when I was hired, um, our boss Carson kept mentioning this. He kept mentioning that um, you know, when this open enrollment started in 2013, our office uh, was going to have to use those same tactics that we got Barack Obama elected uh, to get people health care, that we were going to need to get millions of people to go to a website to sign up for health care, which has never really been done before. Um, so we had planned, you know, very long in advance that this was going to be a big deal. Um, and our office, you know, each liaison um, really put together comprehensive plans on how they were going to reach each of their communities. So whether it was the AFAM community, Latino, LGBT, business, um, everyone had a plan. Everyone had, you know, sort of marching orders when enrollment started on how they were going to reach their community. And then when the rollout uh, hit some bumps in the road, uh, did all those plans stay in place or did you have to overhaul everything? They all went out the window, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they did. I think that we we sort of just assumed that the uh, that the website was going to work. That was going to be, you know, the online insurance exchanges were going to be the main way we we're going to enroll people. We did have navigators and people 
on the ground um, that we're working with outside groups, community health centers and a number of other uh, organizations on the ground because there were a lot of communities that weren't online, right? So we needed to make sure that, that we were reaching those communities as well. But no, I mean, a huge part of our plan was how do you um, reach people, the easiest way we're gonna reach them are on their mobile phones, on the web, on the internet, and um, the website didn't work for two months. So we, we really did need to change all of our strategies. Um, we, uh, Gowden remembers, we, we pushed um, a lot of our plans to um, these online, excuse me, in-person uh, enrollment events. We had some in-person enrollment events planned before the website wasn't working, but um, the actual on-the-ground organizing that we had perfected in 2008 on the campaign actually ended up becoming even more important. Um, but we knew at scale we had to figure out a way to reach millions of people online once the website, you know, finally started working again. Right, and you mentioned that, you know, trying to get a million people to sign up for healthcare online had never really been done. So uh, you probably had to use some tactics that had never been used before. So, you know, just how did you kind of be creative and innovate in the White House when you were uh, yeah. strategizing? Well, it was actually six million people we had. Six million yeah. people, excuse the me. CBO, <laughs> the CBO told us we needed to reach uh, and enroll six million people in that first year of enrollment, uh, which is a lot of people. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, going into it, we, um, again, sort of taking tactics from 2008, um, we relied on a lot of influencers, celebrities, artists, people who had um, millions of people that they can reach. Taylor Swift, was it yesterday or day before yesterday? With one Instagram post, um, reach millions of people, 80 million people, and traffic to vote.org, which is a voter registration platform, uh, increased, un it was an unprecedented levels of, of increase with just one tweet or one Instagram post. So um, that's years after what we were doing, but we sort of knew that there were people like Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and, and really big influencers that with a push of a button could reach millions and millions of people. So we, a lot of our work was, you know, reaching out to a lot of these people and, and um, really making the case that this wasn't partisan, this wasn't, you know, red team versus blue team. This really did mean you know, life and death for a lot of families, whether they can get access to healthcare. And so um, we lined up dozens and dozens of these celebrities. Um, when the website didn't work, we went back to them and we told them, the website will work, <laughs> give, us, give us a couple months. And so we, um, we sort of changed our plans around once the website did work, what were some things that we can do creatively, whether it's creative content or videos or um this is kind of pre-podcast your podcast would have been would have come in handy back then <laughs> um but you know any way that we could that we could reach people we were we were lining those people up so one of those sort of creative appearances uh that got a lot of attention was president obama on between two ferns uh and in your book you describe how georgetown alum uh bradley cooper uh helped make that bradley happen. cooper bradley cooper georgetown alum uh very very proud of it it's uh, very and you know <laughs> cooper and gaga are just crushing it with uh, a star is born it's all very yeah. timely here man yeah I'll come um, circle. it's true yeah bradley was um it's so funny he he as i wrote in the book he became sort of the greatest pitch man for between two ferns um because it's just very coincidentally when we had the decision memo in the hands of POTUS, whether or not he was going to decide to do this thing, Bradley was in town for the France state dinner because Bradley, which I did not mention in the book, he speaks fluent French. He's actually 
I don't know why, but he, I don't know if he's French or grew up in France. Um, so he was at the state dinner. So before the state dinner, uh, Bradley came up and met uh, with Gowden and I's boss, Val- Valerie Jarrett. And um, Bradley actually, unbeknownst to, to him, we had already been talking to Funny or Die and Zach about possibly doing Between Two Ferns. Um, but he just kept telling Valerie and I that we had to do Between Two Ferns, which was hilarious. Uh, and then he actually called Zach on, on his cell phone in front of Valerie and I um, and was pitching Zach that he should do, that he should do this. Um, so it was, yeah, it was really, it was really great. And I, I've seen Bradley a couple of times since then. I saw him at a, a screening for American Sniper, uh, which he did over at the Naval uh, the Naval, not Academy, but the, um, uh, Naval Museum mm-hmm. downtown. And I saw him at some other White House Correspondents Dinner event. And he still remembers. He's like, yeah, see, it was, it was all me. Like, <laughs> I made this happen. So thank you, Georgetown alum, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> you made this happen. Uh, Brad, thanks so much. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, man. And thanks, everyone, for listening to a fantastic podcast with four great White House officials. As a reminder, their new book, along with 14 other Obama White House officials, is called West Wingers. It's available now. Go get it. I've read parts of it, at least the parts that we, about the folks we interviewed, and it is great. Uh, so go check it out. Yeah, and we will see you next week for a very special guest. And don't worry, you'll be hearing none of Alec next week. It'll just be me and Anusha recording. So, thanks, Abby. Yeah, no problem. Uh, check that out, and see you next week. <laughs>